welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And Rick, we are here in Cambridge, Harvard University. I mean, uh, you know, these guys wanted me to go here as an undergrad, but I, I you know, I opted to, to go <laughs> elsewhere. I know, I know you did as well. Uh, but but yeah, we're here no, no. Uh, for for this this thing they do every four years. Fascinating conference brings together. The, the, the winning and losing campaign managers on the Democratic and Republican sides for the primaries and the general. Fascinating stuff. But this is quite a week in the Trump transition. And I want to come out with some news on this. That is, there have been reports that Chris Christie, uh, former governor, current governor of, of the state of New Jersey, um, may be in line to be the chairman of the Republican National Committee, Republican Party chairman. And I I uh, have spoken um, to, to some folks familiar with the deliberations on this. And I am told it is very real. It is very real. That's incredible. I mean, you think about the, the, the landing post that that would be. I mean, Trump's going to want a loyalist in there, and there's no one that's been more loyal than Chris Christie. Uh, that creates another power center, potentially, if he's able to get elected. And I'd assume if, if the president-elect wants him, then he'll be successful in that. Uh, you'd have a very big megaphone, a very big microphone of Chris Christie. You can see a man who would really relish that job and, and do Trump's bidding from the political end, even if uh, it's not the kind of job you need Senate confirmation. It t- changes a lot of things. But we are seeing this, this interesting alignment where the, the, the team of rivals think seems real. Uh, Mitt Romney uh, potentially in the mix for Secretary of State. Uh, Donald Trump doing some interesting things with his transition so far. And I still expect the Ben Carson uh, uh, HUD uh, secretary uh, could well happen, seems to be uh, seems to be in the mix. Um, the, the, we have to also, Rick, talk about that dinner, though, the Romney-Trump yeah. dinner. That's one of the one of the more extraordinary moments of this extraordinary uh, campaign and campaign aftermath. To see the two of them at Jean George, a place uh, in what one of New York's finest and most expensive restaurants serves great frog leg soup, I, I understand. Uh, but, but to see the two of them sitting there and to see Romney come out and talk about Trump in the way he did, you know, in other words, praising Trump, talking about him, the, the, the leader that could bring America a, a, a better future, uh, really, <laughs> I mean, you know, amazing. Right. Well, I had a couple of thoughts on that. One is it, it seems to me that that kind of talk from Romney proves Trump right in the broad case he made against politicians. But beyond that, and I've talked to several Romney close associates about this, they say a couple of things. One is he's a patriot. He respects the office of the presidency. He would, of course, consider any option. He's not going, as they say, hat in hand to to Trump, although I think, as you say, uh, his comments are a little bit over the top. Uh, but they acknowledge that there's a chance he's getting used here. There's a chance that, uh, that, that Donald Trump is using Mitt Romney for his own benefit, uh, m- might end up embarrassing him. Uh, they think there's not a, there's a better than ever chance that he doesn't get the job, and they recognize that there'll be some political downside for Mitt Romney if he's on record in that way, but that he is just too good an American and too much of a, of a, of a God-fearing, God-loving American to, to, to say no to the president-elect uh, and that he'd be honored to serve. But man, is that interesting. I mean, there is no one more associated in high-level high politics with never Trump than Mitt Romney. Uh, he rented his email list to Evan, Mc, Evan McMullen. He went out there and, and, and called him a fraud, a charlatan. And, and to see him now come around on Trump is startling. And we spoke just a few minutes ago, Rick, to Corey Lewandowski, of course, the first Trump campaign manager. We talked to him here on the uh, the sidelines of this of this conference at Harvard uh, in, in, during the lunch break. So there's a little bit of noise in the background, everybody eating. But the, the interesting thing is that while the Romney people, the Romney former aides talk about this as patriotism for Romney, the way the Trump team looks at it is – this shows uh, what Trump always said is that these guys are just politicians and they don't really believe what they say. And fascinating comments coming up in just a moment here from Corey Lewandowski on that. Very different from the take 
uh, from from people that uh, that know Romney well. So we're here at the Kennedy School of Government conference with the campaign managers looking back at campaign 2016, joined by Corey Lewandowski, the man who was there at the beginning with Donald Trump. So, Corey, tell me, first of all, before we look back, let's look forward. Are we going to see you in the White House? Look, honestly, I don't know. Um, it would be a great honor, obviously, to serve President-elect Trump in a capacity if that's what he wanted me to do. We haven't had that conversation, and you know what I have said both when I was in the campaign and when I was out of the campaign. If there's something I can do to help him be successful, I'll do that. So you were there in Trump Tower in the, in the very beginning. I came by and saw you a few times when there were there was basically nobody. It was you. There was Hope. Glasner was running around. It was like yeah, a handful of people. Hmm? Now Trump Tower is the epicenter of basically the White House in waiting. What 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 is the scene like? there day to day and how does it differ from when you uh, first came on board you know it's funny I was in that I was in the building earlier this week and someone was complaining oh it's so cold in here I said cold in here we didn't have heat last year <laughs> literally there was no heat in the building on the fifth floor you know it was very raw concrete uh, walls concrete the, walls you know, no heat no air conditioning card tables it was literally folding tables and folding chairs yeah. uh, fake walls that only went halfway up that were left over from the apprentice and now it's very different and look it's a natural progression of where things stand um, but it was what's obviously the most interesting thing to me is all the people who continue to remind me they were here at the beginning but I'd never seen them before you know at, until the election results were known so uh, oh so a lot of people, a lot of people like, rewrite yeah. history a lot of people rewrite history they might not have been never Trump but they certainly were Trump <laughs> and now all of a sudden they were always Trump always there from the beginning I remember the first day I said no no you weren't here because I turned the lights on the building and I know who was here and it wasn't you so so Corey one thing I'm struck by here at the conference where you have all of these these campaigns you're obviously was part of the, the one victorious campaign everyone's puzzling over how this happened and I, I feel like one theme is nobody really knows and, and people are still trying to figure it out but it seems like you have a pretty good inkling of what just happened and, and how Mr. Trump was able to make this happen what is your grand theory of the case that the secret sauce that, that that allowed Donald Trump to become president-elect I think a big part of it and this can't be understated is the authenticity of Donald Trump the American people they understand people who are authentic even if they don't agree with everything that somebody says you know what they say? At least he's going to tell me the truth. The other part, which I know that people have looked at, but the fact that he's a self-funder is a major factor because people say you're not bought and paid for by Washington special interests. And when he would go out and he'd talk in simplistic terms, I'm not beholden to anybody. I'm funding my own campaign. I'm going to build a wall. I'm a builder. I've done these things su successfully. And I'm going to tell you straight. That has what has always generated the most amount of applause at those massive rallies is people want to be told the truth, they're sick of Washington lying to them for 30 years, you're not beholden to special interests, and at the end of the day, you're authentic, and that's what people want, and that's what this country, I think, has been lacking for a long time. You, you, you referenced some moments that you cringed during the campaign, like, like the McCain insult, and tell Mr. Trump privately, I think you need to apologize, and his instinct wins out. At what point did you realize that that letting Trump be Trump meant having to trust his instinct, trust his judgment, even in times where, like, you as a political operative, anyone you're talking to, all the outside influence is saying, like, no, this is not survivable, this is the end of a campaign, you need to apologize, you need to get out in front of this. He was following his own way, obviously, but when, when did you figure out that that was going to be the way? Look, you have a, a person in Donald Trump who has achieved remarkable success in the private sector and done it mostly on his gut. And, you know, that has to mean something. And my job was to ride him and to turn him into the corners with some blinders. That was always what I said, but you gotta let him run. You gotta let him run because he's the best there is. And once you realize letting Trump be Trump 
is the way to be successful, everything else gets easier. By the way, we should point out it's lunchtime here at the Harvard that's Conference. Why the clanging. That's, that's why you're hearing the clanging. Uh, but I got to ask you about dinner with Mitt Romney and the and the whole process here. I mean, what 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 do you make of this? We know what Kellyanne thinks of it. What is what, what, what do you make of Mitt Romney? Can you really can you really see him after all he said about? Donald Trump get the, the the single biggest political appointment uh, coming out of this campaign? Look, I think what Donald Trump is doing and looking at and interviewing people for is something so much bigger than any one thing. He's, he's trying to do what's best for the country. And I am very, very confident Donald Trump is going to come to the right decision for the country. And if that's Mitt Romney or it is John Huntsman or it is somebody else that is potentially in the works or John Bolton or whoever that person is, I'm fully confident Donald Trump is going to put aside any personal feelings he has to make sure that the best people are out and working for our country and the federal government. I don't know who that person is going to be, but what I know is Donald Trump can do it. It would be really hard for me to do it, i got to tell you. But, but, he, but it's amazing how he brings people in even after they have hammered him on things, and he brings them close because that's what he does. He's a deal maker and he puts people together. Did you kind of enjoy, though seeing Romney come out there and say what he said about Trump after all that he said before during the campaign to come out after dinner and say all those glowing things uh, about Trump. As Honestly, I'm not surprised. You know why? Because politicians will always be politicians, right? <laughs> and they will say what they think the American people want them to say. And, you know, I don't think you'll ever see Donald Trump do that. I, I just don't think you'd see that. I think he's so genuine that if he wants to say something about somebody, he goes right out and says it and, you know, doesn't wait. he said wait. some things about Mitt. I well, mean, he did. Look, he, he killed Mitt. He killed Mitt for a long time, and I think Donald Trump is the reason Mitt Romney didn't get in this race for president because he was hammering Mitt late last year uh, but all the way said, through. he also said he's not that smart. I mean, and not impressive. The, I mean, why would you choose a guy like that to be Secretary of look, State? I, again, I don't think that decision has been made, but what I do have full confidence in is that Donald Trump's going to pick the right person to represent our country overseas. Uh, Secretary of State is a huge job, and it is far from done. I think it will be at least early next week before that decision is announced. Corey, what, what insight can you give when you're going to Trump Tower now? How is he spending his days? Is it is it meeting after meeting? Is it is it kind of roving sessions? Uh, is he is he reading books and, re- and briefing books? Is he making phone calls? We know he's tweeting occasionally. We know he's watching some cable news. What What is the, the typical day like now for the president-elect? Not today when he's out on, the, out on the road, but at Trump Tower. I think it's all of those things, right? So he gets the PDB every morning morning now, the presidential daily brief, he'll get that in the morning. Every morning now. Uh, of course, yeah. sure. Uh, so that's, you know, the, the beginning of the day traditionally where he gets the PDB, then it'll either be a series of meetings or phone calls or staffing discussions. Um, so I, I would assume, I've never been part of a transition before, but I assume it's the typical process where let's look at these candidates for a particular position, let's understand yeah. what our matrix is for decisions, how are we going to fill out the West Wing, who are we coming in, you know, what executives look. The carrier deal is a great example of Donald Trump in action early on, saving a thousand jobs from going to Mexico. We saw this with Bill Ford also. This is this is somebody who's willing to pick up the phone and call CEOs of companies and says, I want to make sure your jobs are staying in the U.S. I think this is a big win today for Donald Trump. Well, we know you have to go get lunch, but what, what, one more thing. One of the big things that he's talked about, obviously, is a big infrastructure bill. At one point, suggests it could be a trillion-dollar spending bill. I, I can't imagine the likes of Ted Cruz going along with that. You know, the, 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 those real fiscal conservative Republicans who are against spending virtually of, of, of any new spending. How is he going to take them on? Look, I, I think the role of the president is... is fairly simplistic, and here's what I mean by that. Protect the American people, both foreign and abroad, okay? That's number one. You have to protect the American people. Number two, you have to make sure roads and bridges are safe 
so that the Americans can get to work every day. And he has said, as a builder, he's going to make sure, particularly in those inner cities that have been decimated by years of neglect, they're going to have the best roads and the best bridges, and our airports are going to be upgraded so that we can actually compete with the foreign countries that have the greatest airports in the world. I think the American people understand we have to be a competitive in a global marketplace. I don't think there's going to be any senator who says, I don't want to compete in the global marketplace. I'm not willing to make an investment in our airports and our runways and our roads and our bridges. Because if they do so, it would be at their own peril. But he'll, he'll fight those Republicans if they try to stop it. I think the, the new secretary and uh, designee of transportation uh, yes. is as a good insight into the U.S. Senate. Mitch McConnell's wife. I think yes. she's going to have, somebody. I think she's gonna have a, a – and she's a very well-known commodity. Oh, no, she's, she's served yeah, yeah. already in, in eight years. In Absolutely. Well respected. She's going to go, and I'm sure she's going to advocate for Donald Trump's priorities, which are going to put more money into infrastructure. Look, it, it has to be done. We can't continue to neglect the roads and the bridges. We just can't. All right. Well, I, they're taking the food away. Tish, right, Rick? Tish, 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 we got like, to like Corey over that. Corey Lewandowski, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, man. All right, that's Corey Lewandowski here at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Uh, conference on the 2016 campaigns. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment with another interview with one of the top columnists for the New York Times. A slightly different take on things. Hey, it's Rick here. We have another new podcast from ABC News to tell you about. It is Popcorn with Peter Travers. He talks to the biggest Hollywood stars, and I mean the absolute biggest. They stop by to talk about their new films and open up about their experience in the business. Again, that is Popcorn with Peter Travers. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. And earlier this week, I had a chance to talk to Tom Friedman, uh, who writes a, a very heralded com- column for Donald Trump's favorite newspaper, maybe maybe not, of the New York Times. The Pulitzer Prize winning author, New York Times columnist, the author of the brand new book, Thank You for Being Late. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Good to On be time. <laughs> we, should, we should mention... So this is an opus. This this weaves together decades worth of reporting and some of the largest themes you can imagine. But we should note you wrote it all before Donald Trump. So the first question is, how does Trump change your calculations and your prognosis for where we stand right now, including the forces that you describe in this book? Well, you know, um, I, I'm going to say something immodest uh, because I've written books before. It's my seventh book, and they all tend to be about um, current events. You know, so you finish a book, there's usually a five-month gap at least between when you finish it and when it comes out, and you always hope nothing big happens. <laughs> um, no, no news. <laughs> something really big happened, uh, one of the biggest political earthquakes our country has ever seen. And um, I'll be honest, I wouldn't change a word of this book. Donald Trump isn't in it. Uh, but the book is really about the underlying forces that have been not just changing our country and our world, but reshaping it. And so um, the the Trump, I didn't predict it. I also did not not predict it. I didn't feed any bugs or anything like that. I just kind of watched it evolve. But um, uh, certainly I'm not shocked by it because I, I, I've been tracking the forces that have been so reshaping the world that um, uh, really – would lead people to reach out for a Trump. You know, my, my book has a, a theme song. Uh, it's uh, by Brandy Carlisle. She's a wonderful country folk singer. I actually thought of, could I buy this song? So when you <laughs> open the book, it would play this song like a Hallmark card, plays Happy Birthday. Uh, and the song is called I, E-Y-E. And the main refrain is, I wrapped your love around me like a chain, but I never was afraid that it would die. You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. Only if you're standing in the eye. And I think the accelerations I define in this book in what I call the market, mother nature, and Moore's law, technology, globalization, and climate, 
Um, they're like they're like the hurricane now. Now we have politicians, and we saw them in this election trying to sell us a wall against these winds mm-hmm. of change. My book is really a celebration and an argument for building an eye instead, an eye that can move with the storm, draw energy from it, but create a platform of dynamic stability within it. What is the eye? The eye for me is a healthy community, which I think is going to be the building block of the 21st century. Nation state too big and distant, single family too weak and frail. It's going to be the healthy community that can create a, a a platform of dynamic stability where people can feel connected, protected, and respected. And I think right now there's not enough people living in these kind of eyes. They're loose. They're unmoored. And I think that's what this election was a lot about. So as Trumpism is, a, is an attempt at a wall, yeah. a physical, metaphorical wall uh, against these changes, is it an attempt to turn back the clock in ways that can't happen? Or is there is there an opportunity, a possibility that it does impede some of the forces that you're talking about, that it does take us backwards in some way. I, you know, of course, we always have to ask the question, which Trump, because um, we've heard him really talk about so many different things. And, and so uh, we'll have to see what he tries to do. But if he does try to, I think, build walls against um, uh, uh, trade, for instance, um, he, he wants to bring manufacturing back. Well, the, the real story is manufacturing never left. In fact, um, America today um, is still the world's uh, by output, leading manufacturer or roughly the same as China. And our manufacturing output has been going up steadily. It's still the biggest sector of our economy. You'd never know that from Trump, who talks about American right. manufacturing as if it's a wasteland. Uh, but we do it with many fewer people. Um, uh, you know the old joke. Uh, Warren Bennis uh, first told that the modern American factory today just has two employees, a man and a dog. The man is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there to keep the man away from the machines. Okay, um, So all these manufacturing jobs, the vast majority, did not go to Mexico. They went to a microchip. So if you promise people they're coming back, um, you're, unless you can massively increase the number of manufacturing outlets in the country, um, uh, and, and God bless him if Trump can do that, and if he has a strategy for it, I really would celebrate that. But the idea that Ford's coming back to your town with a 25,000-person factory, that's over. The factory is now 2,500 people and 500 robots. So it's a, it's a difference in terms of what the economy can represent and what it can bring. Absolutely. And, and we're going to have very different jobs. You know, I was at a conference in September, and there was a woman there who described her job as tagging sharks for Twitter. <laughs> well, who the heck knew there was a job <laughs> tagging sharks for Twitter? Um, but there is. Hey, you come back from college, mom, dad, what are you going to major in? I'm going to tag sharks for Twitter. Well, you couldn't be an ophthalmologist? You know, I mean, if we just keep ourselves open and flexible and educate everybody more, the magic of America will work. It always has. You know, if horses could have voted, there never would have been cars. Mm-hmm. So we've been to these transitions before. And the worst thing you can do in one is close yourself up. Your, your subtitle is an optimist guide to thriving in the age of acceleration. So there is an optimistic tone to this to this book. But is there a, a flip side to the possibilities of going backwards, the speed that, that you describe in this book becoming a speed of destruction, especially in something like climate change? Is there a, is there a tipping point there where you, you, you move quickly in, in a different direction and the optimistic case that you that you lay out becomes a very pessimistic one quickly. Uh, it's very dangerous. You know, um, Trump has said that he thought climate change was a hoax, you know, um, and uh, he backed off that a little in discussion with the New York Times last week. But um, you have to understand these forces, the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. You know, my friend Rob Watson, a great environmentalist, says of Mother Nature, she's just chemistry, biology, and physics. That's all she is. Um, and she's going to do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate. And so Mother Nature, um, she always bats last. And she always bats a thousand. 
do not mess with Mother Nature. So whatever Donald Trump thinks about climate change, um, it's going to be whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate. And if you go up against that, these are powerful forces. Globalization, the same thing. Uh, technology, the same thing. And, um, you know, if you, if you don't go with them and leverage them to get the best out of them and cushion the worst, if you try to resist them, they will hammer you. Are you struck by the fact, I mean, this is a man who, who has lived most of his life in Manhattan, uh, has benefited greatly from the technological innovations that you talk about, it knows the market so well, has grown up in a, in a fairly liberal, progressive culture all his life. He seems to have been shaped by other forces, or, or do you feel like he is reacting to the forces that he's shaped by? Which is to say, he might be, he, he might actually buy into the premise of your book. He certainly doesn't say it, though. Yeah, um, uh, I think anything is possible with Trump. Um, he could have run as a conservative Democrat just as easily as he ran as a um, conservative Republican. These um, things like gay rights, maybe a liberal He's, Democrat, exactly, right, very, right, very easily. Right and I think he calculated where he had the best chance, and he dived in there. Um, uh, I don't know that he thought all this out ahead of time. But um, I think what happened was he came out with a certain impulse, uh, some basic instincts. And I think he was probably surprised at how they were rewarded, how they propelled him. And you have to give him credit for that. Um, he had an intuition about where uh, uh, some of the country was, a significant portion of it. But I think that he is really – I think you know, the, the election is over and the struggle for Donald Trump's soul has just begun. <laughs> and you see it with the struggle over positions like secretary of state. Your title, Thank You for Being Late, is sort of a play on the speed that we're, we're talking about. And that's the, the, a phrase you said a friend used. And, 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 yeah, so, so talk to me about how, how, you, how you process these lessons on a personal basis. If you, were, if you see the speed with which everything is happening, what's the, what's the user's guide to all of, these, all of these changes that are happening so quickly around us? Well, um, speaking personally, um, uh, uh, I'm actually, I don't follow Twitter. Um, I don't follow Facebook. Um, I, um, I'm a deeply disconnected person. I talk the talk of globalization, but I do not walk the walk. Um, I learn by, uh, I'm like Donald Trump, I actually learn by talking to people. Uh, I actually think talking to another human being is a form of data. Um, and so I am very old-fashioned in that regard. I mean, I have a cell phone and all sure. of that stuff. But, um, you know, my, my, the theme of the book is really a celebration of all that is old and slow. Um, I looked at the amazing community I grew up in outside of Minneapolis, a small town slash suburb called St. Louis Park. I grew up in the same community with the Cone brothers, Al Franken, Norm Ornstein, Michael Sandel, Peggy Ornstein, Alan Wiseman. Um, uh, we all, the Cone brothers movie, A Serious Man, was about our Hebrew school bus, basically. Uh, it was an amazing place. And you know what? It was better. Um, uh, I went to amazing public schools with amazing teachers. We all went to the same public school. Um, so my book is really a celebration of everything that can't be downloaded. All the things you have to upload the old-fashioned way, one human being to another. And I think the greatest jobs in the future are going to be those. You know, My friend Dove Seidman has a quote in the beginning of the book. He says, when you press the pause button on a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, it starts. It starts to reflect, to rethink, um, and reimagine. And Dove also has another quote in the book I really like. He says that trust, trust is actually the only legal performance-enhancing drug. When there is trust in the room, when there's trust in a community, it's amazing what people can do together. 
And the book is really a celebration of those things. So you say that it was better. Make America great again? Is it that foreign a phrase? Is it that crazy a, a, um, a mantra? I think it. it um, the most important word in Trump's mantra, uh, I think, is the word again, um, that people want something again. Now, we can't get it again the way we got it before. And the book is really a guide for how we get it again, but in a very different mm-hmm. way. Because you do – the new social contract in the country is – you can be a lifelong employee today, but only if you're a lifelong learner. So then the question is, how can community really promote that? The days when you got to go to college for four years and then dine on it for 30, that's over. But that doesn't mean community can't play a huge role in helping people through that transition. And that's what um, the book has a whole chapter on, on the fact that I think we're in the middle of not one, but three climate changes at once, change in the climate, climate, change in the climate of globalization, change in the climate of technology. So I sat back and said, well, if we're in the middle of three climate changes, what do you want when the climate changes? You want two things. You want resilience. You need to be able to take a blow because stuff happens when the climate change hits. It's disruptive. And yet at the same time, you need to – you want propulsion. You don't want to just be curled up in a ball. So I sat back, I sat back and I said, who can I interview about – thriving when the climate changes. Then I realized I, I knew a woman. She's 3.8 billion years old. Her name's Mother Nature, and she's dealt with more climate changes than anybody. So I interview Mother Nature about her killer apps for thriving when the climate changes, and then I turn that into a political party. Mother Nature's political party, what would she be running on if she were in this election? I don't think she would have voted for Trump. I think that's, that's a fair <laughs> assumption. What kind of relationship would you look forward to with him? You spent a lot of time with President Obama, interviewed him quite extensively and quite engagingly. Would you relish the same opportunity with President Trump? Um, you know, I'm a reporter, not just a columnist, and I'm a writer reported column, so I'm, I'm always open to engaging uh, with people. I always learn from them. And uh, the president-elect and I know each other, um, in part from the world of golf. Um, so we knew each other before all of this. Have you golfed with him? Um, I have not, no. Um, but I've golfed at his golf courses. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and we share a, a, a love for the game. Um, uh, so we know each other. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, uh, I spent 15 months trying to um, prevent him from winning uh, in my column. Um, uh, I may spend the next four years trying to prevent him from doing crazy stuff. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, as he forms his administration, as he forms his his real positions on issues now that he's president-elect and has to deal with the world, um, I'm, I'm open to listening. Um, I'm, I'm trying to use my column to tilt him in ways that I think are right for the country. Um, uh, we, you know, he, he, uh, he enjoys engaging with me, uh, even though I've been a critic and um, – uh, What's his form of engagement? Do you get a handwritten note? Do you get a phone call? No, I mean, it, like in this meeting, you know, I mean, the first thing he said was, I read your column on right. climate change. So he, and he, why, he does read the Times. Yeah, he yeah, made that clear. He, he does <laughs> read the Times. And, and, he, and in the column, I, I cautioned him that his oceanfront courses will be ocean floor courses uh, uh, very soon if climate change continues. And so, uh, you know, to the extent that um, he wants to engage, I, I'm, I'm open to it. But at the end of the day, I, I, I know what I think is best for the country in the age of accelerations. And if he supports that, I'll support him. If he doesn't, I will oppose him with all my might. Tom Friedman, congratulations on the new book. Thank you for being late. And thanks for being here. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. All right, that'll do it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. You can follow us on Twitter, at John Carl. I am at Rick Klein. You can click on us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Let us know what we're thinking. Hashtag Powerhouse Politics. And thanks for listening.